Hello dudes and dudettes, we're back with more Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles coverage here at Superhero Stuff You Should Know. Strap in, sit your butts under those straps, and get ready, because we're about to drop some hot ninja nuggets in your lap. <laughs> Steaming hot, totally <laughs> bodacious, radical, tubular, <laughs> eclectic! <laughs> <laughs> this is your boy, Wolfie... And his good old buddy. Totally turtle tutelage. This is Andrew, everybody. Thanks for joining us once again. Off the heels of our uh, acclaimed TMNT 1990 film coverage, we bring you the second installment of our Ninja Turtles series. We're about superhero diversity at Superhero Stuff You Should Know, y'all. You know, we can't just talk about a rich yeah. billionaire white guy all the time. Yeah. <laughs> what about the green dudes? <laughs> so we're back with a second heaping helping of Ninja Turtle goodness as we do a little bit of a retrospective and deep dive into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. So without further ado, let me pop this tape in. Golden Harvest wasted no time in greenlighting a sequel due to the massive success of the first film. With fears the property may burn out, they pushed to have the film in theaters as soon as possible and release Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Use, less than a year later. I don't think I ever realized that. Yeah, they pumped that out, huh? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze is a 1991 American martial arts superhero comedy. Our favorite kind of shit. Oh, based on the fictional shit. superhero team, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, created by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. The film starred Paige Turco, David Warner, and Ernie Reyes Jr., with the voices of Brian Tochi, Robbie Rist, Adam Carl, Laurie Fauzo, and Kevin Clash. It is the sequel to the film Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1990, as we stated. The film follows the adventures of the four turtles, Leonardo, Donatello, Michelangelo, Raphael, and their master Splinter. Resuming from the events of the last film, the villain, the Shredder, returns to take back command of the Foot Clan and work towards getting revenge on the turtles. When he learns the secret behind the turtles' mutation, he becomes more dangerous than ever. The film sheds some light on the origins of Splinter and the turtles, as well as introduces two new villains, Toka and Rezar, both voiced by Frank Welker. Frank Welker, who's known as the original voice of Megatron in the Transformers, as well as many, many, many others. Too many to cover right here. Very recognizable voice actor. Go look him up. His IMDb is absolutely nuts. The tagline of the film was, 
Cowabunga. It's the new turtle movie. (laughs) That sounds like a dartboard tagline to me, but that's fine. Right. (laughs) This time around, the film was directed by Michael Pressman instead of Steve Barone with a screenplay by writer Todd W. Langan, who returned from the first film. The Jim Henson Company was again tasked to bring the turtles and their new foes to life. The film itself is dedicated to Jim Henson, who died the previous May. Brian Henson chose not to be involved due to other commitments and his dismay at the loss of Steve Barone as a director. As well as both Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird were disappointed that the studio had replaced Steve Barone with Michael Pressman as director and tried to make the film more like the cartoon show. Please, please, Uh a moment to reflect. Ah. Ah. Okay, you just like Ninja pizza. Ah. Ninja pizza? Pizza that vanished quickly without trace. Ah. So already you got a little couple uh, things shaken up behind the scenes and some executive decisions. The music in this film was done once again by John Duprez. And once again, the score is amazing. <laughs> it's awesome. I noticed in that scene when they meet Toko and Rezar and it's like the whole arena fight scene, it's like gladiators. They have the foot standing around chanting. Um, but the music at that point turns into this like Spartacus kind of stuff and it's really well done. Tokan, Rizar, let the games begin. Okay. <laughs> like the first film, New Line Cinema distributed The Secret of the Ooze. We love New Line Cinema. How do you like the sequel compared to the first, Andrew? Uh, I mean, shit, man. I liked it. It's not as good as the first one, but yeah. it's not like a huge quality dip. It's got its own thing. It's got its own moments. Yeah. It is based on, well, if they're going to go for the co- the cartoon, which is really what everybody knew at the time mm-hmm. when we were kids. So it, it makes sense. It's not like the biggest betrayal of the fans really to do that and i mean we were both kids we both loved it in the theater and so it's kind of mission accomplished uh looking back on it now the first one is a lot better but but um yeah i like it overall i mean go ninja go was in this one uh because vanilla ice was humongous at this time and uh i don't know um and again having like the true ninja moments of like the ninja training and having to remove the bells like people right seems like people forget that's really what being a, a ninja is in my mind is being sneaky and unseen and the martial arts stuff actually comes second to that so mm-hmm. I, i'm kind of glad they kind of threw that stuff in there i always even with batman that's a connection batman and ninja turtles there's a lot of smoke bomb usage i'm mm-hmm. a big smoke bomb fan i guess yeah. you could say so <laughs> you seem to be the only one worthy of a final test You'll have 15 seconds. Remove as many of the bells as you can. One sound and you fail. Oh, and another thing. We work in concealment. 15 seconds. Go. Is this enough? Yeah. 
(laughs) (laughs) And like ooze, I've always loved that green color. I don't know what it is. Green's my favorite color. I like, so it's just like, I like that in reanimator as well. I know it's kind of like a really like picky thing to pick apart there, but I don't know. It's a very splatter punk kind of thing. Exactly. Well, we're watching it in the theater. I I remember this because <laughs> it's ninety one. I'm in first grade. Uh-huh. I, I think everybody but Taylor's there. My youngest brother. He's too uh-huh. young. But we're from a town called Eclectic, Alabama. Okay, we go to see this movie. That's the thing that we want to see more than anything in this world at the time. Because I'm like six mm-hmm. or seven. Mm-hmm. Donatello, they're saying a bunch of like, you know, advanced words, I guess, Frere Jaca and all that. Yeah. yeah. He says the word eclectic. Right. And we fucking couldn't believe it. Like, they're saying our hometown? <laughs> this is crazy. Right at the beginning scene where they're all like spouting like a cool Ninja Turtles catchphrase and Donnie chimes in with eclectic, which is really funny. I didn't, I couldn't have imagined that a place was called eclectic, but it's so weird. It's where I grew up until I was 13. Nice. You're a Ninja Turtle. You're the Southern one. Yeah, exactly. Um. (laughs) I like this movie. Definitely not as much, nearly as much as the first one. I think there's a lot that was done as you'll see um, throughout the episode. There's a lot that was done to kind of balance to meet the concerns of parents as well as still having fun and making, getting the best out of the turtles. You know, this is certainly not the worst Ninja Turtles film, (laughs) Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, but it does but it does have it does have some pretty glaring issues in regards to certain things, but then also some really interesting compromises that came out of um kind of you know, catering to the conservative adults, I suppose. <laughs> Overarching que- question about this whole movie. So the mm-hmm. first one, looking back on it now, especially as an adult, that first movie is all about fathers. So mm-hmm. you have the th- the thematic thing there is fathers. You have mm-hmm. Splinter, their father, gets kidnapped, who they do not take for granted. But then, what's his name? Danny. Mm-hmm. His father is not kidnapped, but he leaves him. He takes him for granted. It's all about fathers, this whole mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. So, like, is there something like that in this movie, do you think? Not to that depth. The main... Right. The main uh, I would say the main kind of, like, thematic core of the film is through Donatello and he essentially realizes or finds out through Dr. Perry, Professor Perry, played by David Warner, that essentially the creation of the ooze was a mistake. You know, basically saying that the turtle's existence is a mistake. So there's this real like existential crisis that they barely touch on with Donatello for a few scenes, but there's there's that inherently and the, you know initially there was supposed to be more of that diving into the, the existential why, crisis the why of the turtles as opposed to just the what you know that we got so it's it's, it's, a, it's a fine line you cross there because yeah. then you get into like one of the other things and i'm sure we've all like a lot of people are well, i'm in a lot but like people our listeners maybe and mm-hmm. you and i have thought like you know, have you ever thought about like maybe they're so jokey because they're trying to hide the sadness that they're so alone of being well, only four four of them? <laughs> yeah, and and in in more recent uh, 
they've always kind of glossed over that fact uh, in a lot of ways just because it's yeah. kid stuff but it's too in, much for kid stuff yeah yeah and in but in more and in, in more recent years with the idw series and even the 2012 series and even with rise they address the, they really play up the fact that the turtles love being turtles right and like they wouldn't want to be anybody else um but they do yeah. they do with the idw series and some of the older comics they touched upon the love lives of the turtles just separately and stuff like that. So it's like, they're not missing much. They still got all the parts, you know, for, for what they are. And, and I think the perception on the humans in the IDW one. In the, uh, I think, yeah. Kar- Karai and Leo have a thing. And then, uh, Raph and named Alopex, who is a mutated snow leopard. Oh yeah. 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 There's more in terms of like adult, oriented situations that come up in some of the more recent comics as well as the older comics. Um, and the 2012 series did a little bit of this with, with a lot of fun and still kept it like childlike with like Donnie Donatello having a crush on April and then April subsequently liking Casey and all that stuff. So they toyed with the ideas, but I, it's an interesting point. Cause that's like a thought I maybe would have had years and years ago about the turtles and like, yeah, maybe they're, you know, laughing to keeping to keep from crying or something. It's it's very sad. And it probably yeah. shouldn't be in like <laughs> it could Nickelodeon yeah. shows, but right. Well, it could be perceived that way. But then on on that same token, they are known for a lot of dimension hopping and a lot of interaction with anthropomorphized characters. So I don't think they're missing out too much, really. They, I think if they wanted they to get special. down, they on could. The way. Uh, April, it's Mikey. I just like to say hello. Would you give me that? Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. And then to answer your question, coming back around, the kind of core theme of this that really it's really not touched upon so much, but has to do with feeling like the turtles are special and destined to be something great. We already see them as something great in like our real world perception of them. But yeah, you can certainly see the plight of of a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, especially since in this film and in a lot of the later properties, they talk about how the mutagen or the ooze is has these accelerating properties in terms of intelligence and growth and stuff like that. So um, a lot of it is like the turtles are those characters who essentially were figuratively speaking born yesterday. You know, they just right they're growing up fast so um so yeah there's some there's other smaller themes that come up but not really it's really just kind of a fun romp yeah exactly yeah yeah in the original teenage mutant Ninja turtles film the turtles facial expressions were cable operated with all the motors and servers etc housed in the shell with also long cables running from the turtle to the operators uh in this movie Thanks to the, a larger budget, the animatronics were much smaller and lighter and were built into the face themselves. So a lot of the oh. stuff that was in the shell, computer parts, was able to fit in the head now. Um, as well as the, the puppeteers from the Jim Henson Creature Shop employed state-of-the-art computer software and radio-controlled animatronics to give the performers more freedom of movement and exhibited a higher range of facial movement. Um, I don't know specifically, but it seems apparent to me that these suits are completely rebuilt from the ground up and you can kind of tell they're a little bit more sophisticated in this film they uh figured out what works and what doesn't yeah yeah smoothed out yeah i got you yeah 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 
and it, and it seems there's a lot of like prop uh, props being kept and costume pieces that are kept by actors and performers and stuff. So it seems like the studio can be fairly generous with some of that stuff. They so. generally don't care when it's over. It seems like yeah, especially yeah. maybe they, maybe they do now, but I think back in the day they didn't really care. All and if your much. budget goes up, it's like, oh, fuck, we're going to redo those anyway, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, take it. It's just yeah. the paperweight now. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. That's cool. So this is one of the things that's clearly actually better than the first movie. Definitely. I think even in okay. watching, it's, well, you know, the first one's got its charm and it's really well done. You know, it was just a leap of feat of innovation. In this one, they had a better handle on it and it shows. So there's a lot of additions to this film. A lot of new stuff came in. For one, a new sidekick named Kino. So Ernie Reyes Jr., who played Donatello's fight double in the first film, was cast as a new character named Kino, as the producers admired Reyes and his performance in the first movie so much that they asked him to join the sequel. Basically created the role of Kino to replace who was considered the ultra-violent Casey Jones from the first film. (laughs) You know, and... I think with a lot of films that have like monsters as your main character, so to speak, there's always like that human character that we, that's like our surrogate that we're experiencing this through. And I think Kino also facilitates that as well. What do you think of Kino? No, Kino's great. I actually met Ernie Riaz Jr. at a convention one time. And uh, yeah, I mean, Kino was able to kind of, kind of learns ninja shit. I like seeing the Ninja Turtles become, they're sort of, you could see how good they are at their thing via mm-hmm. Kino not being that good. Right. I mean, he's good at martial arts, but not at the ninja aspect of it. Right, not yeah, at, totally. So the, I, I keep coming back to the bells thing, but that always like, resonated scene. with me. Fantastic yeah. scene, yeah. Yeah, I think that's really like one of the more, more memorable scenes for me. <laughs> Kino so. says, is this enough? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. so cool. Dare, a da- really daring plot by the two, by Kino and Raph, you know, and... Um, in the IDW series, you know, they have this new setup where Raph was estranged from the other three turtles for the beginning, uh, kind of mixing up what we're used to, but actually plays really well. And I was thinking, I didn't like it at first, but it plays really well now that I was thinking in this film, like it, it just goes deeper into why Raph is, is, has a penchant for going off alone. It's not that he hates his brothers, that he feels like he can do better on his own. It's that he's used to being on his own. He's lone wolf type. There's just people yeah. like that. And they, yeah. they gave him a reason. It's it's pretty good writing. Yeah. And retroactively, when you think like watching this and thinking about that, I was like, oh, yeah, that's so cool. Like the turtles for me, in essence, is about characterization. It's about defining these characters in each adventure um, in different ways and stuff. So that's and, yeah. Uh, Kino helps. My Kino shit. helps that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at the very beginning of the movie, Kino and during Kino's first fight, when he showcases his prowess with the martial arts, which is really good, the hand-to-hand martial arts in the film is really fun. Um, and in Kino's first fight, after he knocks the first guy down and kicks him to the ground, he says his line "Stay down" was improvised. <laughs> oh, really? So you you can already tell he's like probably got a like nice, healthy kind of cocky attitude about who he is and who he's becoming. I mean, he's in the biggest movie in the world at the yeah. time yeah um young asian guy like badass and so to just like throw that line in full of charisma the guy is just full of charisma um he had a leading role in uh surf ninjas after surf that, ninjas he? yeah <laughs> and then he showed up much later in the rundown with the rock and a like non-speaking role 
Yeah. But um, he's great. He is really great. And I've seen him in a lot of martial arts documentaries and a lot of interviews about martial artists in Hollywood and stuff. So, uh, yeah, he's cool. I hope he turns up again or I hope he's doing some cool stuff right now. Uh, but unfortunately, like Danny from the first film, this is the only time we ever see the character Kino. He's never mentioned again in any other TMNT variants. There's he's not an he's on anything right. He's like uh, anything, Max Shrek yeah. from B- Batman Returns. He's like a yeah. one and done. Yeah, the only yeah exactly the only other character who would be maybe similar to him is a character named Hun um, from the 2012 series, but. Oh, yeah only similar in the fact that they're two Asian martial artists and Hun is very much modeled after Bruce Lee and he's a bad guy. So I think sadly it might boil down to royalties because if they make Kino in the, in an animated version or a comic book, that right. means an ongoing yeah. paycheck from here until, until eternity to yeah. Reyes jr. So, uh, I mean, it would be great for him to get that paycheck. I'm sure. But that's probably the reason why they don't ever do it at the same time. Right, you know? yeah. Yeah, so also in this film, bringing in the new, we have a new actress playing April this time around. Paige Turco of All My Children fame was brought on to replace Judith Hogue from the first film. It was a strange move considering that Hogue was, con- was largely loved by the fans of the first film. And speaking to Variety, Hogue said that she wasn't asked to reprise the role of O'Neill in the sequel because she complained to the producers about the lengthy six-day shoots and the violence of the original movie, saying, quote, Everybody was beating everybody up. I thought the movie suffered because of that. It was something I spoke to the producers about. I think they thought it was too demanding and moved on, <laughs> which we covered in the last episode um but page turco's not bad page turco again i, I guess that's mm-hmm. my dumb kid comment but i just never <laughs> i didn't even notice that they changed april's a couple years ago somebody said in passing oh yeah they changed april's all the time in those movies and i was this is before yeah. i had rewatched them yeah. as an adult and i was like what they did i just had no idea <laughs> at all right you know i mean we wouldn't have that kind of frame of reference nor care like you said in the last episode nor give as much a shit about april as we do the turtles that we're here for the turtles um, yeah that's really what but, it's all about but in, in my in my case i did notice that it was different but patriarchal was not bad she's she's really good she brings a lot of like a nice spark to the role and she really played it as if there wasn't a change or an interchange. It felt like she was, she really stepped up to the plate and I like her version of April, um, you know, against Judith Hoag's. Yeah. So we're sitting here talking about all the new stuff coming to secret of the use, but what about the old stuff? Where the hell's Casey Jones? What happened to him? Elias Cotius. The character of Casey Jones, who was a prominent in the first movie was thought to be too violent and did not appear in the sequel, though he did return in the following movie. <laughs> Dude, I gotta tell you, bro. I don't even think I've even thought about that till now that he's not in the second one. Right. <laughs> and I've rewatched it recently. That's hilarious. <laughs> oh, like man. he's just probably finally April just pressured him to get a job. Is what happened. She's like, I'm not gonna date some yeah. homeless guy who beats up other homeless people. <laughs> you know. Sh- he's off going to uh, Pearl Jam concerts yeah. and shit. He's like the epitome of '90s <laughs> yeah. grunge. He was hot and dangerous the first time around, but he must have really rubbed her the wrong way after a while. Familiarity breeds contempt. Yep. Uh, Secret of the Use is the only movie in the trilogy which does not include Casey Jones as a character, as he's become a staple of the entire universe. He is. He is. 
him and April are like the fifth and sixth turtles, really, even before Janica, oh, even yeah. before Janica, the new character introduced in IDW. Yeah, it's, it's an odd thing, but he got some reworking later on, and he's, you know, less high-sticking, really, is what it's all about. <laughs> right. Less hooking. Um, but we miss him. We miss him in this film. Well, I guess you didn't, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> we all, I didn't realize, but yeah. yes. Well, that was a crime, you purse scrubbing pukes. And this is uh, the penalty. <laughs> Two minutes for slashing, two minutes for hooking, and lest I forget my personal favorite, two minutes for high stick. How about a five-minute game misconduct for roughing, pal? Hey, bogey, now who died and made you referee? You did your job, now get out of here and let me do mine. These JV lowlifes need to be taught a lesson. Not like that, they don't. Not from you. We also had a new Donnie, a new voice of Donnie this time around, the... In suit performer was the same, Leif Tilden, to, to throw him a little shout out. But according to Corey Feldman, who portrayed Donatello in the first film, producers did not want him to reprise the role due to his rehab stint at the time. They had concerns oh. that having Feldman on board would attract negative publicity, clashing with the family friendly image they were trying to portray. He lost a big paycheck on that one. Well, he really, he, yeah, he, yes, you're right. He would have. And as we covered in the first one, he didn't make a lot of money to begin with doing it. Um, however, Donatello's voice is played by newcomer named Adam Carl in this, um, in this film. I'm not familiar with much of his other work. Apologies, Mr. Carl, but he does a really interesting kind of like taking from Corey's voice, but building it into its own thing. And I paid a lot of attention to Donnie's personality in this film and so what it seems like with the turtles films is you got to kind of sidestep one turtle, <laughs> unfortunately. And okay. what ends up happening is in the first film, Donnie has some good lines. Corey Feldman has some good like one liners and stuff, but he really is kind of sidestepped in terms of depth of character. Um, yeah. And in this second one, they kind of sidestep Leo because he's, you know, the leader character. We get it. He's like the Cyclops. He's like the, you know, boy scout. We don't care. But they did boost Donnie's. Just Donnie's, you, bro. Well, just to just to speak from know, the zeitgeist. I <laughs> but uh, you know, yeah, for sure. But this this Donnie is much deeper, and I really liked the characterization of Donnie in this one. Uh, in his autobiography called Choreography, <laughs> both genius and ridiculous <laughs> at the same oh time, God. spelled ridiculous. as C O R E Y, choreography, a memoir. Uh, Feldman said the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was brought to me in the fall of 1989 when I was already pretty deep in my heroin haze by the time of the sequel Feldman was in rehab and unavailable to join the production fortunately he did get another chance to voice Donatello in the god awful Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3 Turtles in Time (laughs) (laughs) which no one wants to remember Uh, so getting to more of the meat of the early production aspects that came in here, the turtles weapons were banned in the film. This may I, come as a shock to people who I didn't don't even, I can't, I can't even remember that. That's, and I saw yeah. this recently. Yeah. But yeah, I Don, guess you're right. Donatello uses his bow staff a few times in the film and much to like comical effect. Uh, but uh-huh. due to the, due to the backlash from parents over the darker and more violent tone of the first film, the producers decided not to allow the turtles to use their weapons for almost the entirety of the film. This film, 
as a means to compromise, which is something I kind of liked in this film, is they found ways for the turtles to kind of improvise weapons um, if they weren't doing just hand-to-hand, which is mostly what they do throughout the film is like hand-to-hand combat. The choreography in the first film was really great, um, but in this one, amidst all those compromises and stuff, I feel, I still feel like they delivered. And it was funny. I <laughs> Limitation breeds creativity, bro. Right, yeah. And I, I, I really, I think Todd Langan as the writer for this film and the last one, I think he defined, for me, he defines the comedy of the Turtles. And I feel like one of the shining lights of this film for me is the comedic, the jokes, the timing, the characterization is all on point, in my opinion, in this film. And so some of these limitations and pushing it more towards the cartoon, you know, I don't hate it. I I do dislike that whole toyetic kind of thing and the the perspective that that comes from. But um, but I like we like never what got you said, the yeah. we never got the van. I feel like in a, in the live action. Yeah, the van, just the a, van was iconic to me when I was a, as a kid. The pizza yeah. thrower van. Right. They hinted towards it in the first film with the van they ride out on. Um, But that's about it. And then later in the newer films, we see the turtle van and stuff. I guess it wouldn't, it wouldn't be too, uh, it wouldn't be sneaking (laughs) around in that kind of van. So they kind of lose the ninja aspect a little bit, but there would be absolutely no sausages involved according to the British board of film classification. (laughs) And I'll tell you why that sounds crazy no and sausages <laughs> no sausages okay so in the film there's a scene right at the beginning in the first fight scene there's they're not using their ninja weapons right so michelangelo is having a fight with this dude and he's pushing him up against this like charcuterie butcher kind of <laughs> storefront and there's all yeah. these hanging sausages like linked sausages so michelangelo grabs one and kind of twirls them around for a second as if they were sausage nunchaku yeah um However, you can just they say were nunchucks, bro. It's cool. Oh, Speaking nunchucks. Speaking English. Yeah. <laughs> In Japanese, like, it would be nunchaku. I like saying nunchaku. Nunchaku. <laughs> nunchaku. Um, so the British Board of Film Classification had the distributors remove shots of sausages from the film to receive a PG rating. What? R slash brand new sentence. <laughs> Teenage uh, the, Mutant Hero <laughs> Turtles. They even took the, the ninja out for a time. Exactly. Yeah. They. Yeah. Um, the reason for the removal was because Michelangelo made use of a couple link sausages as main sh- makeshift nunchucks in the opening fight scene, and due to the government at the time being concerned about violence in children's television, particularly ninjas and their weapons for some reason, or objects that could be then perceived as those weapons. Um, so as a result, sequences of grappling replaced all sight of the turtle Michelangelo using his trademark nunchaku weapon, nunchucks, or chain yeah. sticks as they're known in the UK. What? Um, they don't even say nunchucks over there? Yeah. And the sausages stayed in the US theatrical cut, but were only shown briefly. Um, if you go back and watch it, he doesn't even hardly get to the point where he's using them as nunchucks because they don't want kids yeah, I don't grabbing that. whatever. Yeah. And... Uh, so, I think uh, the whole tra- changing ninja to hero thing, they, they might have been thinking of the real world image of assassins too much. But potentially, yeah. Like There's every some... single, uh, you know, stereotypically boy, like franchise toy at the time from the 80s, especially the 80s. It was like 
I mean, all those characters kind of have a basis in vi- kind of violent characters. Totally. G.I. Joe, Rambo yeah. had some of the best figures of my early childhood. Violent yeah. as fuck. Robocop, yeah. come on. But yeah. yeah, it all came to a head at a certain point, and I guess the parents finally decided to get involved, and here we are now with Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles in the UK. Right. They tend to bland everything up anyway. <laughs> they they changed it back though. It, it is is I think it they, is now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, yeah, right. in the UK as well. Yeah. Um, in the BBC version as well uh, of the show and the film, the term "bummer" is changed due to concerns over the term having homophobic meanings in British slang. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. So they it's don't say such "bummer." A surfer thing totally. to us. If you're if you're from the UK out there, please let us know about all this. If you experienced <laughs> any of this because that would be very interesting to to us bummer is it's just something that especially mikey would say yeah. whenever something is shitty yeah and the uk much different connotation much different connotation yeah. uh, go watch you a, a guy richie movie to find out <laughs> by the way thinking back on this uh, again looking back as an adult they're all because of the skateboarding thing and even sometimes surfing thing. Mm-hmm. There's such a like California vibe to them, even though they're from right. New York. Yeah, like, that they must comes be going to surf in Rockaway Beach in New York or something, or you know, something, or just seeing TV. I guess TV is mostly produced in California and movies when they're coming up have their TV in the sewer watching. Right. I don't know. You know, you speculate upon it. Donatello has a line where he's riding like an office chair across this laboratory and he's like he goes hey Mikey, hey Mikey surfs, surfs up dude, dude. And he's like really <laughs> corny about it it was yeah. like it's super funny and I had the exact same thought I'm like these motherfuckers are from New York yeah like but you know the brand itself was created in New York but the cartoon was produced in California and I, honestly I didn't in, really notice the shit when I was a kid so they they generally give Raphael the, in my in my memory that it's kind of he's got the thickest New York accent. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Raphael's the most the most New York uh, out of them all. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but yeah. Um, so also in this film, we get a new hideout as the Foot Clan destroyed the sewer lair that we saw in the first film and is most likely trying to find the turtles uh, and destroy them. Um, since the last film and at all times. So in this film, it begins in Secret of the Use. It starts with the turtles staying at April's apartment, which is much different than the apartment from the first one. She upgraded, uh, but it's still pretty crowded. Oh, Michelangelo, <laughs> Leonardo. Donatello and Raphael. The rat, rat is, the is the cleanest one. one. <laughs> <laughs> and I was chuckling my ass off, boy, yeah. let me tell you. That's the first of many hot, hot one-liners <laughs> in this film. Uh, but anyway, they get a new hideout in this film. And they find uh, later in the, uh, like early in the second act, they find an abandoned subway station, which serves as the new lair. Um, and is based on the real-life decommissioned City Hall station in New York City in, of the New York City subway, built by the former Interborough Rapid Transit Company. The station is not completely abandoned as it appears in the movie. Trains pass through the station daily as they turn around to head uptown, but passengers are allowed to ride through the station, but the train does not stop, and so they cannot disembark. 
Um, I think it's kind of like a nice antiquated, like historical thing you can kind of see from out of the train as far as I was reading. I thought it was really cool when I was a yeah. kid. I, was, this is, I think this is kind of a little bit upped from the oh, uh, previous That's the, the home I yeah. still want to this day. If it's not the train station lair, then it's the foot warehouse. But honestly, I would take yeah. the train station lair over the foot warehouse. It's such a cool looking environment. Yeah, this is. I definitely noticed this even my first viewing as a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and some other little tidbits about some of the locations. Some of the filming took place in North Carolina, like the first at North Carolina Film Studios, um, <clears throat> with a lot of stuff being done uh, in studio in New York this time around just because they had a bigger budget and they could centralize things a little bit more. And also the entrance to April's apartment at the beginning is the front office of the Jim Henson's Creature shop in new york right right which is pretty cool for a little bit of location stuff um so maybe to the surprise of a lot of others the shredder is back in this film because we thought we all thought he was dead did you think he was dead i gotta be honest with you i was not surprised he came <laughs> back sure. he's like the only he's like the joker he's like he's always back yeah, i don't know totally I, totally he's i mean their main adversary he in a lot of ways he defines a lot of what they are and what they fight for who the fuck is their second I don't even know who their second villain is. Like, who'd be number two after Shredder? Popularity wise, the Utrams and the Triceratons. Uh, in the cartoon, you're dealing with Krang. You're dealing with Baxter, yeah, Krang is Stockman. Yeah, you're true. dealing with Leatherhead and various other like mutant of the week kind of characters. Yeah. Um, but in the early stages of this film's production, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird weren't into the idea of the Shredder being the main villain of the sequel, stating they'd created an entire world of characters in the comic book series and would have liked to see something and someone different for a change. According to Laird's... It's almost like they were correct. No, totally, totally. (laughs) According to Laird's original notes, which he posted on his blog, he proposed that only the Shredder's helmet be shown in the film, uh, the Kuro Kabuto... I love that idea Um, (laughs) uh, saying, quote, Eastman and I both feel that the shredder should not appear in the second TMNT movie, but this might be a subtle enough way to refer to his ambiguous fate and send the scene and set the scene for his appearance in a third TMNT movie. If that happens. Oh, they would yeah. have had such a better. <laughs> Get this. This is some Ben Juan knowledge yeah. you're 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 uh, dropping right oh, now. Yeah. This is a, some some tutelage learn, going on here. Learn from a greats. Um, get this uh, Laird also added that he can't recall if he ever sent those notes to anyone <laughs> oh my god there, he was too busy in his fucking tank uh, <laughs> driving yeah, around fucking yeah. um, Connecticut right. or wherever he's from he's from like new, somewhere in New England right. um, the, the producers of the film wanted the movie to be closer to the cartoon and so they decided to have Shredder return uh, uh, against potentially the the wishes of Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, which were essentially consultants on either film. Um, They had kind of a lot of sway in terms of where things were going, but really it was down to the producers, especially in the second film. Um, We also got a new actor with Shredder this time around in Cambodian act Francois Chow, um, who took over the role of Oroku Saki from James Saito in the first film. Um, And I mean, obviously there's a mask there and it's, another Asian actor. So, I mean, and we're young, you know, we, we didn't notice that at all. The voice is near exactly the same, but, um, um, if you look up the IMDB for Francois Chow, you will see that you've seen this guy everywhere. 
um, both actors had really good, pretty good prom, uh, meaty. What am I going to say? Both actors had really, uh, extensive careers after the fact as well. Um, Okay, that's yeah. good. I was I was expecting he only had the one yeah. thing. And actually, they did the TMNT pizza party. Um, what was that last month? Month? Yeah, last month, uh, where they brought some of the original cast members and stuff. And James Saito came back to do the Shredder monologue that we referenced in the first one. That's so great. And just watching him do it, even through a Zoom call, was pretty spine tingly dingly. I wish I was there. That was cool. I mean, that that seemed cool. I'm glad. I'm it glad was you really fun, that. and they yeah. Yeah, they've done a few other events since then, and the kind of like the attention has seemed to dip since the 30th anniversary has come and passed. The NECA toys um, and all that for for the yeah. first movie, and some of the like even the other, like cartoon ones like Metalhead, and like the the quality seems so good on those. Oh, like the- those toys are awesome. So in this film, we notice that there's two new adversaries, big mutant creatures, but they don't look anything like Bebop and Rocksteady. Where's Bebop and Rocksteady? Where did they go? What the Where heck? Where are those boys? <laughs> so I'm glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> originally, originally the studio wanted Bebop and Rocksteady for, uh, from the Teenage Mutant Why Ninja not? Turtles 1987 cartoon to appear. However, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird were against it due to wanting to stray away from the likeness to the cartoon so Toka and Rezar were created. Are you serious? They they so yeah. they're the ones that wanted that. Yeah. That's crazy. That's interesting. Well, yeah. Uh, one main concern that Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird had was that the second and any subsequent movie stay as much away from the con- the cartoon show and as close to the original black and white comics as possible as the first movie did. They felt there was plenty of material in the black and white books to form the basis of another good movie. Oh man. I think that's pretty you know, even though it would have been tight to see Bebop and Rocksteady, obviously because we knew them so well at the time, um, I, I, I philosophically I kind of I definitely see where they're coming from and would have probably uh, later I I'll, well next I'll read their pitch for what they thought the sequel should be. Okay, and it it'll blow your mind. Oh, okay, it'll blow yeah, your this, mind. This this is yeah this is Ben Juan territory. I know I keep comparing you. This, <laughs> yeah. is, this is some good <laughs> shit. Uh, okay, but basically there's a licensing issue with Bebop and Rocksteady because. Kevin Eastman sent in the drawings for the designs of Bebop and Rocksteady, but the origins and the back story for the characters were written by a guy named David Weiss. Okay. And so essentially it's probably another like royalty kind of thing. He wasn't involved in this production and very little people who had anything to do with the cartoon were involved with this movie as opposed to Eastman and Laird. Um, So essentially it just sounds like they didn't want to pay this other guy either to pay him out for bebop and rocksteady being in the film yeah it makes sense it's sad with that stuff yeah, but so, uh you know yeah. whatever and that was that was the first uh reason i fell but then found but then digging deeper they've you know eastman and laird have been pretty vocal about how much they wanted the movie not to be like the cartoon but the producers were like fuck that's the biggest thing right now it's going to be exactly like the cartoon and in a lot of ways, it really is. Yeah, um, it makes sense. I mean, it worked for, for yeah. us as kids, and so it's sort of mission accomplished. Um, so those are a lot of things that went into the production of the film and kind of decisions that were made into going into the film. Um, after the break, we'll go into some behind-the-scenes ninja nuggets for your pleasure. <laughs> uh, and so enjoy these messages. I can't wait. Hi, I'm Troy McClure. 
You may remember me from such films as Darren Aronofsky's Batman Year One and Joe Schumacher's Batman Unchained. And right now, you're listening to superhero stuff you should know. <laughs> Alfred, I was wondering if that fishy swa was ready yet or not. I'm hungry. Coming, Master Wayne. Hold your horses. It'll be done in just a moment. I need my sustenance for busted thugs in the streets. On the way, on the way. Here I come. Worry not. My gosh dang biceps barely even fit in this gosh dang bat suit anymore as well. I'm going to need that tailored again as well, Alfred. Here's your sandwich, Master Wayne. Uh, yes, yes, let me take a look. Of course. Again, no, no problem. I guess one could say I've gotten a bit too swole, as it were. <sighs> Last night on patrol, I put a bunch of <sighs> What has become of my life? This is Alfred Pennyworth, a 63-year-old butler. He lives his daily existence in servitude to what appears to be a feckless lunatic in pajamas. I punched him many times, leaving him unconscious but still alive because I'm still the Batman. He toils day and night to satisfy the whims and whimsy of an overgrown child. One finger push-ups, motherfucker. Let's do this shit, Alfred. We are here quite seriously to examine what in the world went wrong. How has a man who served his government as a special forces agent and a man who has dedicated his life to the service of his greatest friend, but now we see the glamour of this life that he's chosen has seemed to worn off and the look in his eyes is that of pure despair. Alfred, you know I require a swirly straw with my drink while I eat my fishy swa. Ah, yes. Master Wayne, my apologies. I'll retrieve that right away. Thank you, my good man. All right, everybody. If you like that little preview to the sketch right there, we have that plus news, plus we're bringing back some opinion pieces and uh, review type stuff and all kinds of stuff in our $5 tier on Patreon. So just go to patreon.com slash superhero stuff pod. And if you become part of the $5 tier, you can see these new bonus episodes. Basically consider it Superhouse DLC. Hashtag surge the sack. Oh. All right, and welcome back. Hope you had a good break. We got up. Sometimes we take those breaks to get drinkies and snackies. Um, hope you enjoyed those messages. Turtle uh, gummies. And got, <laughs> and got yourself some gummies. By the Stink way, bugs. I don't think we have seen quite the merchandise craze that mm-hmm. that Ninja Turtles experienced in in the in the early to mid nineties, like from mm-hmm. nine from nineteen ninety ninety five or so. Yeah, I mean, there were literally clown turtles. There was like so right. many turtles that weren't in the show. Cowboy turtles, and then well, like everything, yeah. dude. It was it was nuts at that time. Um, but yeah, you definitely don't see nearly the 
grandness of the merchandising like it was in its heyday. And part of that is too, is because, um, the, the toy market is, is mostly collectors and a lot of kids play more video games than action figures and such, you know? So the, yeah. the, the tangible character is not quite as sought after for kids as it used to be. We must have been one of the last generations to really lean into action yeah. figures. Oh yeah, I love it. Even now in my mid thirties, I'm I still can't get enough of. of those it is like plastic. a little nice little sculpture on your desk yeah, or something. You know, it's it's playable it's nice. art. You know, playable yeah. art, posable art. I love taking pictures of figures and making animations and and <laughs> such. Uh, so anyway, I wanted to hit you with what I think is a pretty mind bending pitch to what the sequel of the Ninja Turtles. 1990 film could have been i can't wait for this and apparently it's an approach that the studio accepted but the first the last drafts of the script were very different from the first drafts of the script i'll say that (laughs) Um, so the approach the studio accepted from kevin eastman and peter laird involved revealing part of the mystery behind the turtles origin that began that being where the mysterious canister of ooze came from namely the quote or namely the techno cosmic research institute tcri as it's known in the comics huh. uh, the, the story was to fairly closely follow issue number four of the comic where the turtles discover the tcri building after a rooftop fight with the foot when the turtles enter the building they encounter the weird tcri aliens the utroms they're little squishy brain-like creatures about the size of a basketball and ride around in the stomach cavity of their humanoid robot vehicles Sound familiar? Yes, it does. <laughs> All right. And so the Triceratons themselves, which are an interdimensional uh, group of mercenaries that are anthropomorphized dinosaurs, were going to appear after the Utrams activated the transmat device they were working on to get to their home. Later, they suggested using the whole Mauser scenario that is in book two, only tie in the Mausers with the TCRI guys as if they created the Mausers as well. Baxter Stockman is actually a TCRI alien, fronting his Mauser idea as a way to make money for the company to aid in their efforts to get off the planet. Uh, The studio used this as a basis for the movie, but made changes to closer resemble the Fred Wolf cartoon show. Among them was replacing the Utrams, Triceratons, and Baxter Stockman with the Shredder, Toka and Razor, and a cartoon Baxter knockoff named Jordan Perry. This sounds like a humongous budget, but amazing. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So you would have had essentially the origin of the turtles, which this has been linked in the comics and uh, later in the cartoons that the Utrams or in the 2012 cartoon, the Krang um, would have been the catalyst to creating the mutagen and thus the catalyst of the turtles being born and would have had a more like, um, as it's stated in the name Technocosmic Research Institute, uh, which in this film, uh, in the film, it's changed to because of all the script changes and everything, it was changed to the Techno Global Research Institute. Wait, um, so the ooze is uh, of interstellar origin? That's what they're saying here. Yeah, there would have been an alien element, which would have been the Utrams, which as far as we know from some of the more popular media and in the comics, it was more of like an interdimensional kind of alien race um, as opposed to like UFOs or whatever. 
but yeah, it would have been an essentially alien origins to the turtles. And I think at one point with the reboot by platinum dunes, they were going to go this route, but to the point that they were going to have the turtles themselves be aliens fan backlash over those rumors, like pretty much squash that as a possibility. But this sequel would have seen this. Well, to segue into the next little bit, uh, was professor Perry supposed to be Krang? in the original script the film was to end on a cliffhanger with professor perry being revealed to be a robotic shell for a neutron aliens from the original team the aliens from the original comics who created the ooze to power their technology this was dropped due to the fear of kids mistaking it for krang a villain from the cartoon who was based originally on the utrams but that subplot just got cut immediately from the film Um, so the secret of the ooze quote-unquote secret of the ooze was that it was made from the stranded Utrams through a front company called TCRI. Since the final script did not include the Utrams, the company was changed to TGRI. But they kept the, the secret part in the... Right. Sounds and it's, cool. And it's not as powerful, and it's very much less weight, you know, and it kind of... Well, it leads to that realization that Donnie, you know, like, it was more or less a fluke, uh, the way that they it ends up in the final film which is there's something to be said about that, but on a grander overarching kind of like sci-fi bend, the original secret of the ooze would have been pretty freaking cool. Yeah. Um, this, this sounds like we kind of yeah. got robbed yeah. here. Dude. This yeah. It's incredible. man. Right. Laird said that Perry was originally intended to be an Utram disguised as a human. He added that he'd heard a scene was filmed where Perry lifted up his shirt and revealed the Utram within although he did state that he can't verify the claim for sure. So essentially wow. we would have saw some version of what we knew at the time as Krang. And then even if this were the case and they somehow left this subplot in, uh, it would have been, that would have been awesome. We would have just been like, holy smokes. And then the third one would have been Technodrome. It would have been Dimension X. It would have been Krang and it would have been, you know. Right. Which they finally brought him in on Out of the Shadows, but it's, just really not the best movie so unfortunately in this film ninja rap is born (laughs) (laughs) dude absolutely loved it could not get enough as a kid and even now (laughs) i know i know for a fact even though you know maybe a memory i've blocked out but i know it had to have been definite that i was absolutely in love with go ninja go ninja go ninja rap um, by V ice himself, Mr. Vanilla, um, <laughs> who said, speaking to MTV that I wrote the song in a hotel room using an SP 1200, an old school drum machine. It took me maybe 30 minutes to write it. And the rest we completed in the studio. Yeah. That so he basically time. was given carte blanche to write whatever the heck he wanted. And like I said, I know I love this as a kid watching it again this time around. I watched it the other day. Uh, it's very cringy. And, <laughs> And you could tell this dude wrote it in 30 minutes. You can just absolutely tell. It almost anyway. doesn't matter <laughs> yeah, what the totally. lyrics are. The chorus is sure. Go Ninja Go. That's all the fuck you need. Like, yeah. it's it's fine. And, I mean, we loved this shit. And this is literally, this. this is, Turtles 1 came out in March. And that summer, coming out of their Shells tour went national. And so we got we got rock and roll like glam rock turtles dancing on stage <laughs> and then and then later ninja rap 
you got these choreographed turtle ninja turtle dance moves. <laughs> yes. Uh, in the club scene. Um, Wasn't there later on a turtle opera thing too? It was ridiculous what they I did. Mean, uh, yeah, the I mean, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I would not be surprised. Um, but yeah, so I mean, ninja rap is what it is. And I mean, it was, it was huge. It was humongous for us. That was probably like we were talking about Kiss from a Rose in our last, our Schumacher episode on Overly Critical. This is the last big song, I think, for kids yeah, before yeah, exactly. Will Smith really fucking leaned into that shit. You're so Men in Black probably songs. right. You're so right. Yeah, this I was it. This was it. like the yeah. song of the summer in <laughs> elementary schools, bro. Yeah. And this was Vanilla Ice riding his 15 minutes of fame. I mean, he's still, fa- he's more infamous now than every anything, but... Uh, when Ninja Turtles 2 was going on, he was dating Madonna and oh, man. He was writing, huge, hi- huh? writing hits in 30 minutes or less. <laughs> Yo, it's the green machine. Gonna rock the town without being seen. Have you ever seen a turtle get down? Slamming and jamming to the new swing sound. Yeah, everybody that's moved. Vanilla is uh, leading into my next subject is we got another ridiculous moment in the film is when uh, in the end of the film, spoilers, <laughs> uh, Shredder has a small vial of ooze after they've retrieved the canister, the final canister of ooze. Um, Shredder still has a little bit uh, under up his sleeve, and so as he's <laughs> as he's defeated in an extremely weak climax, Donatello cranks the volume on a speaker, and then Michelangelo hits a keytar in order to blast the Shredder out of the venue with like a <laughs> speaker power. And That's it's like right. at the time at the time I didn't I didn't care so much but watching it again I was like oh that's lame you know compared to the last fight but anyway so shredder ingests the last of that mutagen which they don't call it mutagen they call it ooze after he's blown out of the venue ultimately becoming mutated into the super shredder so apparently the ooze itself can change the molecular makeup of your clothing as well because the super shredder not only is he nearly seven feet tall at this point but he's got extra spikes that have mutated out of his metal <laughs> armor metal armor which I, later I you find that the spikes like a, are made of rubber actually kind of like a little creepy whenever yeah. i was uh, yeah. a kid it, he, he did kind yeah. of weird me out yeah he does got that like splatterhouse kind of mask thing going on big brutish but anyway, under this costume, we have wrestler Kevin Nash, a.k.a. Big Sexy, if you're a wrestling fan, um, <laughs> who, who was under the costume of the Super Shredder. Uh, and Nash went on to dominate the wrestling business, becoming world champion in WCW and WWE, and has built up a decent filmography of his own through the years. He actually plays the Russian in the Thomas Jane Punisher film. Uh, he's been in quite a few other things, I think. A lot of TV as well. Um, There's also a moment in the film when the Turtles first encounter Toka and Rezar. Michelangelo asks, didn't we see these guys in WrestleMania? Which is a great line. Great timing. (laughs) That voice actor, this is my favorite Michelangelo by far. But in fact, Kevin Nash would later make five WrestleMania appearances, including one as WWE champion in WrestleMania 11 in 1995. Aside from Super Shredder grabbing Leonardo and throwing him to the other three Turtles at the end on the docks, uh, during the destruction of the pier, uh, the turtles make n- zero physical contact with the shredder throughout the film. Wow, I m- didn't realize that because yeah, they used much, the uh, yeah. the uh, keytar blast. Yeah. 
It's a super shredder. So those are some things that, uh, some tidbits, some juicy tidbits from the film itself. Um, going deeper behind the scenes, I wanted to regale you with a little bit of uh, some anecdotes from the stuntmen and some of the injuries that were sustained. Um, so for instance, one, when the script called for Leonardo to perform a back handspring. So in the film, when the turtles are being punished, Splinter will be like, Leonardo, 10 flips now. In-suit performer Mark Queso wanted to do the back handspring, but director Michael Pressman was unwilling to risk an injury on set. Pressman wanted Queso's stuntman to perform the feat, but the stuntman didn't know how to do a back handspring. Oh, okay. And then a search was initiated for an outside party to do the stunt, but Queso, a national gymnastics competitor, eventually won out and performed it himself. Queso later said of the matter, I was like, well, I want to do my own thing. You're going to go out there and look for someone worse than me? You cannot find somebody to do a better back handspring than I can. I want Leonardo to have the best one. And the best one he did indeed. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Leonardo, that's, that's the guy right there, man. <laughs> Hell yeah. However, despite the precautions during the, of the scene where the turtles are trapped in a net and fall to the ground, stuntman Stephen Ho, who played Donatello, broke his ankle. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> A steel cable holding the net snapped and the turtles fell six feet onto the sand-covered stage at Coralco Film Studios, said Michael Casey, publicist for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Secret of the Ooze. Here's a fun little fact for you. Stephen Ho, stuntman who broke his ankle, kept the Donatello head and later became a stand-up comedian and uses it in his act. Larry, let's bring out the bag. It's not my laundry. <laughs> This is very special. You guys are never going to guess what's in here. But I'm going to give you three hints. It's green, it's squishy. Now, this is the funny part because you're going to get it. Its name references the beginning of a poop. <laughs> Grayson, get that? Great right, music, don't get it. <laughs> didn't palma bring this up in our initial interview years ago yeah i think that's maybe that sounds very familiar actually um speaking of which nick palma former guest of the superhouse podcast who plays michelangelo and larry lamb who plays leonardo were treated for minor injuries and released uh, due to the fall the fourth ninja turtle Raphael, was tied up and had his mouth taped and he was uh, tied up to a post at the time so that stunt performer just had to watch as his friends fell to their doom oh man <laughs> shout out to nick palma go check that interview out on the classic superhouse podcast episode back in the day at one point during the club scene with vanilla ice performing leaf tilden the actor in the donatello suit was supposed to roll stuntman daniel Pasina, a foot soldier and then do a sidekick like choreographed however 
Tilden decided to do a roundhouse kick instead without first telling Piscina, and as a result, Piscina almost lost his two front teeth. Whoa. That would have sucked. You got to communicate with your boys. Yeah. And and actually in that special that I watched, the half-hour special that's on YouTube, just type in like the making of TMNT2 or whatever. They talk about how communicating with all the performers to create the single turtle takes about three or four people to do one turtle um, was integral to the process. And so they all kind of had to get into each other's head and they all kind of had to act as they all had to kind of like be the one character in their disseparate functions on set. Um, Really interesting. I don't think I've seen that. I'm going to watch that later. It's pretty cool. It's super cheesy. You know, it was like that. There's just basically a big ad, but um, there's I'm some down. there's some really cool behind it. the scenes stuff. Yeah, uh, Leaf Tilden, the Donatello performer, Michael Insisti, who played Michelangelo in the costume, Kevin Clash, who did Splinter, David McCarran, the voice of Shredder, Toshiro Obata, who played Tatsu, Michael McConaughey, the voice of Tatsu. I didn't realize there was two different. There was a different voice for Tatsu. What? Um, and Raymond Sarah, who plays Chief Stearns, <laughs> there's actually a really nice jab uh, to New York police in 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 this film, where April basically says something like, "You're just going to turn a blind eye to these giant monsters wrecking the city," and then Chief Stearns is like, "Well, that's what we do best." <laughs> and I was like, "Damn!" <laughs> Damn. Um, but the, all those char- all those people mentioned are the only cast to return from the first film. Uh, Brian Tochi, the voice of Leonardo, and Robbie Rist, the voice of Michelangelo, are the only two actors who appeared in all three live-action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies. Oh, uh, shit. Less on the stunt side, but more of like a behind-the-scenes tidbit. Uh, but then back to the stunts. Martial artist and suit actor Daniel Pacina stated in an interview with Up, Up, Down, Down, a YouTube series, that the Ninja Turtle costumes had very small eye slits for the actors to see out of, that were also a good three inches away from their faces instead of being flush. So as a result, most all most of all the fight scenes show Foot Clan actors standing around waiting to be hit because the turtle actors couldn't see what they were doing, <laughs> which is kind of unfortunate. They covered dude, up well in they, a lot of They can these... never see anything. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's amazing what they do, dude. It's incredible. Right. Yeah. They really, there are those eye slits and those are pointed out in the special as well, but they're not much. And Pacino went on to explain that if you watch close enough, the Ninja Turtles would first throw out random punches and kicks, and then a foot soldier would bend and jump in front of them so they could be hit. <laughs> it's yeah. pretty funny to think of grown men doing this, but hey, <laughs> it's show business. Um, yeah. This explains why. This explains why many of the foot soldier actors couldn't throw back any punches or kicks of their own, as a, <laughs> as the turtle actors didn't have the ability to react. <laughs> it's kind of it's on par with like stormtroopers not being able to aim or whatever you know it's just like kind of built into the rule set at this point in terms of these costumes and everything damn yeah so i mean yeah it's it these are it's it's incredibly hard what they what mm-hmm. and they have to they have to do more i mean stormtroopers look they're they're the most iconic films of all time they're star wars of course you know they're iconic their design mm-hmm. and all that but they basically a lot of the times they just kind of kneel down and shoot so it's right. not that big of a yeah. deal. These guys are doing full-on roundhouse kicks and all kinds of shit, blocking you know another mm-hmm. person's punches and shit, not being able to see really anything, right. not much at all. You know, so it's it's really just incredible. Yeah, definitely, and I'm mean, sure it's had to have been so hard. They were saying that the uh, 
they would practice like 10 hours on just a single hit to make sure it looked right. Uh, because yeah, often most of the time these guys were just working blind. Would you say that even without the weapons, the fighting is better in this movie than the first one? Um, I don't know that it's better than the first one, but I think it's it's a really decent compromise, and I think mm. and I think it turned out well in this film. Yeah, That's and cool. they're funny too. The fights are good. They're fun. They look good, and they're funny. <laughs> <laughs> which is not necessarily something that I need so much of in a turtles film. You know, I would definitely want to see them using their weapons, but, and you know, actually just now that we're on this, I was thinking about what potentially could have been a workaround for this. Um, so catering to kids, you know, you take away their weapons or something and maybe even give them different weapons or have them do more hand to hand like they do in the film. But address it in such a way where splinter is like we can't kill we can't harm other humans and we you know we got you know a little too close to the sun or whatever with the first film where we injured a lot of people so maybe address it you know in the film story wise and have them set their weapons away um and then get new weapons or whatever just hand to hand or having to having to basically take the Batman oath of not killing and figuring out different ways of doing that. Um, but then in a third film, I would have been like, you got Utrams, you got robots. And so they're a much greater threat. So then they unearth their weapons again. So then you get to see Leo slicing through some robots, Donnie like bashing through the chest cavity of these robots, you know, once yeah, you put in robots, then, then it's the a robots, little bit easier. Yeah. It's all over. It's, just, it's what the cartoons did. So it's, it'd be perfect. Yeah. Really. Exactly, and like it would have been an interesting workaround to have done, if not just jumping right to the pitch that Eastman and Laird would have had robots. So, if not jumping right to that, then maybe there could have been a workaround for, like they said, a third movie where you could come back and you could up the ante with some Android foot. And I'm still waiting to see that in a live action. That'll be tight. I'm into yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so here's another funny little thing with the stuntmen in the background. Uh, when Vanilla Ice first arrived on the movie set, Mike Linsisti, the actor in the Michelangelo suit, went up to Vanilla Ice to give him a hug and welcome him aboard on the movie. However, Ice's overweight bodyguard stiff-armed him, even with the full turtle suit on, and nearly 18 of the actors and stuntmen, including Daniel Pacina, stepped forward to pounce and defend Sisti. The film's stunt coordinator, Pat E. Johnson, immediately stepped in and stopped them from fighting. Oh, man. Piscina later told the incident in an online interview and said that Vanilla Ice's bodyguards almost got their butts kicked. (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah. Um, Some notable cameos in the film besides Vanilla Ice, who we already talked about with the Ninja Rap. Uh, Michael Jai White of Dark Knight fame. Michael Jai White was a Foot Clan recruit about 42 minutes in. Uh, Of course, you can't tell which one, but he was there apparently. Mark Queso, who we talked about earlier, who's the gymnast and stunt performer inside the Leonardo costume. Uh, he also plays the man in the newsroom who tells April that Donatello is calling her. Mike Linsisti, uh, the performer inside of Michelangelo's costume, also plays the Soho man who talks to April before she enters her apartment. Also, Curb Your Enthusiasm actress Susie Sussman. The, the bigger guy's wife? Yeah, yeah. She's uh, the Brooklyn Jew character, basically. Yeah. But she's also in this film in that moment with Mike Linsisti and he's all Whoa. crushing over April as she's walking in. He's like, oh, April O'Neil, uh, can I help you with your bags and blah, blah, blah. And then old girl from Curb Your Enthusiasm is like, can we get out of here? Can we? Like, she's being wow. the same character essentially, but 
they're there. It's super bro. funny. That's crazy. Yeah. And so if you remember audience as well as co-host, uh, Michael Insisti was also the Domino's pizza delivery guy from the first movie. Oh, so, shit. You know, next time you go watch Turtles, he's pretty immediately recognizable after you make that connection. But they do a good job to kind of make him a whole new person. It's really funny. And he has a little time. To, both those scenes, he has a lot of time to shine. And I really like that guy. I got to look at more of his work. But um, that's cool. Yeah. And so also uh, director Michael Pressman is the Channel 3 news manager who's given April a hard time pretty early in the film, right before that moment where Donatello calls her. Um, actually, it's kind of midway through the first act. So this film was dedicated to Jim Henson, as I mentioned earlier. Um, uh, but it, this is the first Ninja Turtles film to include a dedication. But the second film would be the TMNT film from 2003, which was also dedicated to the actor Mako, who voiced Splinter in that film, which is also a great Ninja Turtle adventure. The uh, reception of the film. So the film was released on March 22nd, 1991, like really almost a year from the release of the first one uh, by a couple days, really. And received mixed reviews from critics who felt it departed from the much darker tone of the original 1990 film. Yeah, duh. And the film was financially success. But the film was financially successful and became the 13th highest grossing film domestically in 1991. Wow. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, it was the biggest thing in our childhoods. Like, it, it was. Uh, it. I mean, yeah. When I think back to all the phases that we went through, it seemed like Ninja Turtles were the biggest one, even bigger than Power Rangers. Because by the time that came around, half my fucking friends or more at the time weren't into it. They had already grown out of it, even though we were like eleven. But still, they were like out of it. Mm -hmm. some people hit preteen phase earlier than Losers. others but i was super into that that was probably for me second biggest mm -hmm. but definitely biggest overall was the ninja turtles and i think that's the same for a lot of us absolutely yeah yeah definitely it was not gonna no matter what happened in this movie it was gonna make that money it was such a big hit first time around and as we stated to begin with, Golden Harvest was just like, we get the turtles out there before this property loses steam, which luckily it hasn't and I doubt ever will. I am uh, fairly certain I saw it at the Eastdale Mall Theater in Montgomery, <laughs> Alabama. Uh, the merchandising, as you would expect for the film, was massive. Franchise was arguably at the height of its popularity around the time that The Secret of the Ooze was released in theaters. A number of tie-ins were brought out alongside the release of the film, including toys, posters, lunchboxes, trading cards, T-shirts, and books. An official comic book adaptation was released by Archie Comics uh, and a collector's edition with cardstock cover by Eastman and Laird. Playmates Toys released action figures of the new characters Toka and Razor and Super Shredder uh, and were available for purchase around the time of the film's release. One year later, the hugely popular movie star subline of the toys was released. The series contained toys of all four turtles plus Splinter and a foot soldier in authentic movie stylings. In contrast to the usual fi uh, turtles figures, these figures had a real rubbery reptilian feel to them from the soft PVC plastics. And they all came with a little plastic ooze canister so you could, you could have a collection of your own little TGRI canisters. Um, the Turtle franchise had by now almost immersed itself in the food industry as well, with characters from the franchise appearing on numerous food products. 
So my sources for this episode have been an article from the Orlando Sentinel about the TMNT, the release of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, as well as the IMDb page for this film, and a, an article by Comic Book Resources about uh, behind-the-scenes secrets of TMNT 2 that we have we have broken through, as well as um, I scoured the internet as much as I could for good behind-the-scenes tidbits for this one, Ninja Nuggets. And it was interesting to see how they approached making a sequel to this hit film and how different it ended up being. Uh, do you have anything to say I think wrapping the, up? The fact that is going to stick with me most probably is just how quickly they came out one after another. I, yeah. I was not aware of that until this episode. So thank you for the turtle tutelage once again. Yes, definitely. It's always a pleasure <laughs> to bring to light any turtle any turtle facts that I can find. I live, eat, and breathe Ninja Turtles. Actually, I eat pizza. <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll be back again with more Turtles tutelage for the superhero stuff you should know podcast. Thanks uh, especially to uh, Shamrock Balls again on YouTube. Yeah. Um, I wanted to shout you out again because you do say this is public knowledge because you put it on your comment on YouTube, but you're, uh, you are actually from Ireland. And if you are listening to this one, if you're not just a Batman fan, but also an Ninja Turtles fan, uh, if you could let us know what the TMNT craze was like in Ireland, if you were around at that time, uh, that'd be cool. If you have any uh, Ninja Nuggets of how it might have been different in your area, part of the world is are there any other kind of weird differences or any kind of like was anything different over there and uh that's it for us i guess just please join the shasta army that's the one dollar tier on patreon we have a lot of other tiers as well uh please check that out it's patreon.com slash superhero stuff pod please check that out many ways you can join and lots of merch as well so, uh, yeah, please search for superhero stuff you should know on all the social media, including YouTube. I am Thunderwolf Drew on Twitter and Instagram. Please leave us a review on iTunes. And also, you can become part of superhero stuff you should know by using your voice recorder app on your phone. You probably already have it. And this record us a little bumper of whatever, or even a sketch if you want, but you can become part of the show that way so basically almost anything goes and puts you maybe even in the front of the show so uh anyway that's it for me andrew signing off thanks dude for the turtle tutelage no problem this is wolfie signing off cowbunga dudes this has been brought to you by the superhouse podcast network